From KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative, you are listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with filmmakers Brent Scott Mays and his brother Derek Mays about their new film, La Flamme Rouge. I mean, even shooting La Flamme Rouge, we did have to hide a little bit of the fact that you're in Nebraska and we took advantage of the Fremont tax incentive. Yep. So we were a bit um, you know, required to shoot a lot more in Fremont than you know, you have a lot more cityscape stuff to use right. in Omaha and Lincoln, which would have made it a bit easier, but, you know, we got what we needed. La Flamme Rouge is a movie that was filmed in Nebraska, although it doesn't necessarily take place there. I talk with the directors about putting it together, where the idea came from, why they made it here, why didn't they get out when they could, as well as where do they want to go from here and what's the trajectory for this movie. We'll be back with all that after this break. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Brent Scott Mays and his brother Derek Mays, also known as the Mays Brothers. There's a lot of these brothers out here making movies. Have you noticed that? I was excited to talk to them because they are Nebraska filmmakers, both with experience in ads, with experience in making shorts. They've worked in Lincoln. Uh, and they talk about essentially what, is it, what does it mean to them to be a filmmaker, to be filmmakers in Nebraska, and why they chose to come back and make their first feature, La Flamme Rouge, here. La Flamme Rouge is a David Lynchian thriller. It is definitely not the kind of Nebraska film that I generally watch for interviews like this. Or if you go to film festivals here, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of the Nebraska nice sort of satires. You get the, the Alexander Payne sort of uh, homages. This is, this is uh, we're in surreal, violent, non, non-Nebraska-like territory, which is exciting uh, to have a, a new sort of genre attempt here. It was filmed in Fremont primarily. And we get to talk about why, why, why shoot this movie here if they have to, in some parts, hide that it takes place in Nebraska. Why come back to Nebraska at all if they could make the movie somewhere else? And it's an interesting conversation, particularly as there are movements led by people like the producer of La Flamme Rouge, Aaron Parks, to have tax incentives to have different types of productions come here. So it's not always just, hey. We're a bunch of friends and we got phones. Why don't we go make a movie? Instead, it could be something a little bit more uh, like, a, like a real industry, like a, like a real thing that has money where people come and they have equipment and maybe trailers that get paid and, you know, all these crazy ideas like that. So here's my conversation with Brent and Derek talking about La Flamme Rouge, which just played at the Omaha Film Festival and likely has a lot of other exciting festival dates and other announcements coming up later this year. I saw the movie, and first of all, congratulations on making a movie and having it premiere in festivals. It is cool, and it's a it's a movie with real stars. It's not just like you know you made it with your friends and everything. So it, that's right, so much yeah. further than so many Nebraska filmmakers ever get. So uh, I, my first thought, actually, after finishing it, was uh, I wonder if these guys can explain what the hell Lost Highway was about. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. That's a great thought to have. <laughs> Yeah, it seemed like uh, David Lynch is all over La Flamme Rouge, right? So uh, was David Lynch, I mean, what, what was, what's your relationship with him? How far back does that go? Man, I don't know. Uh, the first time I saw Mulholland Drive, I think I was a freshman in college, and that just you know changes your life as a movie fan. You can't yeah. really go back. So there's a whole rabbit hole to go down, and then he got into it too. Yeah, he showed me Lost <laughs> Highway for the first time. I don't know when. I remember it was early on in college, and that's still my favorite film. And Peter Deming, the guy who shot that, the cinematographer, he's probably my favorite DP as well. So it's kind of nice that we were able to get Baldazar, you know, <laughs> worked out pretty well. Well, th- those are tough movies too. I mean, it, it's amazing oh, yeah. that they're ultimately as commercially successful as they are because they're. I, I think a lot of people who love them, even you ask them, like, "Wait, so what was that movie about?" And they're sort of like, "I don't know," but it was it was a great experience. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, it's got to be difficult and kind of daunting to try to go into that because Lynch is sort of like his own genre, right? So, I mean, was it always the idea that you wanted to do something in that vein, and was it sort of daunting to try? I mean, it's one of those things, I think just the, if you're a big fan of it and you consume media that is, you know, kind of in that sphere of influence, you, 
making something that's not necessarily like a ripoff of it, but it's like adjacent and can live right. in that universe. It really comes naturally if you know what you're going for. So you guys are from Nebraska. What what city are you from? Uh, Falls City. It's about two hours south of Lincoln. Okay. And not a lot of filmmakers from there, I'm guessing, right? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, like, there's a lot of people who sort of have dreams of getting into the entertainment industry from Nebraska. And it's almost always like, you know, it's, it's okay uh, as long as you get a day job or kind of have a backup plan. So, I mean, for you guys, how soon did you decide that's what you wanted to do? And how real did it feel like it could ever be? Um, I went right out of school, kind of working as an assistant camera person, like traveling around, taking whatever I work. I could get like that, you know, so I AC'd and worked on short films and commercials and whatnot for a couple of years and then got into doing music videos with him. And uh, at that point, he was running an ad agency. And then we kind of, I don't know, I hit a point and he hit a point where we were just like, we want to move into feature filmmaking. And that was about what, 2017? Yep. And at that point, we had uh, solidified like the short film version of the Lavoie Rouge script. And it was just at that juncture where, like, let's just turn it into a feature mm-hmm. and just dive right in. So uh, the short version, how how similar to what ended up uh, being on the screen was it? So it, it ends uh, right at the shooting. Okay. Yeah. It would just <laughs> yeah, cut off. <laughs> Well, so it's also working as brothers kind of has its own. I don't know if that's quite a genre, but there's there's there is sort of a thing where there are brothers. You got your Cohen brothers, your Fairley brothers. Uh, you yep. you must get along pretty well, right? Because I imagine to work with family, it's sort of like uh, when you when you leave work, you still uh, you, you take it with you, right? Because you, you hang out with family and you can talk work. You can sort of do that. So I mean, how did the dynamic develop between you two? And how did you decide you could handle each other for as much time as you must spend working on these things together? I mean, I think a lot like, uh, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of similarities between brothers that end up doing, you know, what we do. It's, you know, you grow up and you don't necessarily get along, but then you get older and you're like, oh, we all like the same mm-hmm. stuff and see things in the same way. And it's just, it ends up working out naturally, I think. And, you know, it's super handy on set because we have our own way of working and our own shorthand. You can just cut through a lot of the crap a lot faster i think with the with a brother's team right and like we're we talked about with how we write it's like not a lot of writers have an immediate like kind of this is a terrible idea check you know it's like and there's no one that's going to tell each other that more than we are so you know we're not going to ruin each other's day being like yeah i hate that that's a terrible idea we're like yeah great and you move on you don't think about it you don't get mad about it it's just we have that kind of check and balance that works out really really well so who, who's older uh, i'm older so were you sort of uh the one bringing uh some of the cultural influences in did you were you the arbiter of uh what uh what you guys were watching as kids even yeah a lot of it yeah <laughs> so i mean were you guys making stuff at all as kids whether it's you know kind of like ads little videos or anything i mean we were both really into just music and video uh-huh. games um he actually plays guitar and was in a cover band. Uh, so I just think a lot of those you know, extracurricular hobbies growing up, you know, just learning how to use music software and stuff when you're in high school, you already have a leg up going into like editing suites and stuff mm-hmm. when it comes to film. So. Yeah. Well, and the question I have that uh, it, a lot of people, the advice you get is if you want to go into the entertainment industry, uh, get out of Nebraska, right? So what's the appeal to stay in Nebraska or come back and then uh, even to film the movie here? Because it's not like it's a typical Nebraska story or anything, Laflamme Rouge, right? So why, why, why Nebraska? Well, we wanted to kind of start our feature career proving that we could make a film kind of anywhere with whatever cast we wanted with whatever things we have kind of stacked up against us. And it's a little bit cheaper making a indie here than it is in Los Angeles. So, but yeah, and that was another great point you had. We spent a lot of time in La Flamme Rouge kind of hiding where we are, you know, it needs to be this nondescript, like noir city in the middle of nowhere. And that had its own challenges, but you know, like the next film we want to do, we will be able to maximize kind of the fact that we are in Nebraska and have these certain landscapes and stuff that you can't get elsewhere and whatnot. But yeah. 
I mean, even shooting with Plum Rouge, we did have to hide a little bit of the fact that you're in Nebraska and we took advantage of the Fremont tax incentive. Yep. So we were a bit, um, you know, required to shoot a lot more in Fremont than, uh, you know, you have a lot more cityscape stuff to use right. in Omaha and Lincoln, which would have made it a bit easier, but you know, we got what we needed and yeah, you can shoot your neon night city in Nebraska. It mm-hmm. works. Well, yeah. I mean, so had you spent too much time in Fremont? Like before the movie? Uh, not until we started going there for location scouts. Yeah, I think we <laughs> shot a couple things there with Aaron beforehand, like some commercial stuff. Yeah. That was about the uh, the extent of us knowing Fremont. So. <laughs> we had a lot of people on our team that did know it. So Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's funny. So your, your next movie is going to be maybe more in the – I mean, when, when people think of Nebraska stories or even Midwest stories, I mean, you got your Alexander Payne type. Uh, I feel like there's – you do see, at least in independent movies, people either go that route where it's sort of like maybe a kind of gentle satire of Nebraska nice sort of stuff, or it's an independent horror movie that's all gore, right? And so, uh, you know, trying to navigate that, it's almost like you guys, uh, you didn't really land in either, which is interesting. And yeah, like the whole time I'm watching, I'm sort of thinking like, I feel like this isn't supposed to be a Nebraska story because it, it, it doesn't seem like these people would be here. Um, yeah. I mean, so w- were you dealing with influences from Nebraska filmmakers at all, like uh, like Payne? No, I mean, I like a lot of his movies, but I guess not too much of what his films have resonate too much with what we want to make, necessarily. Yeah, yeah I feel like we're operating in such a different space that uh, there really hasn't been much overlap right. with, uh, you know, the subject matter or, um, you know, just that aesthetic of mm-hmm. the you know, small town or, you know, riffing on the idiosyncrasies of people who live here. We could do that if we wanted to. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. I I kept, uh, I kept waiting for like a a Nebraska person, uh, like a more typically Nebraska person to show up in the movie. Then when, when that person didn't show up, I was, I, 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 convinced myself okay never mind this is not a nebraska movie i just need to let that go from my head yeah i, I think if we did that it might be more along the lines of like david gordon green's yeah. approach to this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so okay what was the kernel of the idea how did this movie start to come together as a story basically it's just a fusion of all of these uh aesthetic influences you've got the very dark, mature, moody themes, and then just the the visuals. Um, right. We uh, we had an uncle that grew up like doing. There's these things where you can pay to ride behind or in front of the Tour de France and stuff. So he would, uh, you know, he do that stuff. We love old like audio equipment. I think some of the first visuals we had was this uh, really smooth like Hebrew uh, Corporation kind of classy scene with these two guys talking, listening to reel to reel. So. So it, it, we kind of had these images and I don't know stuff that we want to convey, and then we kind of found a story to weave in between them with things that kind of interested us and that might fit there in a unique way. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking today with the Maze Brothers, directors of the new film La Flamme Rouge, which filmed in Fremont and follows the story of one traumatic night as the life of a retired cycling champ unravels into a nightmarish fever dream of murder, steroid rings, and assassins. So what's the writing process? Do you guys, uh, does one person sit at the computer and the other pitches ideas or how does it work? We take turns. Yeah. <laughs> and how long did it take to write? Uh, yeah, was... really only about, I don't know, three or four months once mm-hmm. we started actually turning it into a feature. The short, I think, took longer than the yeah. feature. <laughs> Well, it strikes me as because it is so atmospheric that a lot of that's probably hard to convey on the page. So, I mean, was was it difficult right. to sort of tell people what you were going for from the script to, uh, you know, the, like it's, it's more of a feeling, it's a mood, right? And that, that's not, yes. you can't just say like, you know, the mood is this on the page and actually convey that effectively. So, I mean, how, how did you guys go about that? I mean, I think some of it had to do with the people we approached. Like, we knew George Griffith would read it the same way we wrote it, and the same way kind of like Nicole and Balthazar, obviously. But uh, some of the, I don't know, when we were pitching it to people that kind of didn't, like, have that, you know, pre-loaded David Lynch kind of, like, <laughs> lens in their mind, it was, uh, we made a pretty good, like, pitch package with, like, visuals to kind of, like, explain, like, 
the tone is almost like more important in this thing than a lot of stuff that's going on in the script. And uh, yeah, I think there was one point um, on set where Todd Lowe was like, I don't really know what's going on. I'm cracking these jokes, but there's all these people dying. I, I don't really know. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I noticed you went with a lot of people who've worked with David Lynch. Um, with, that must have been, uh, you know, I, I started this by asking about Lost Highway. I mean, do, do you guys care about the meaning of some of those movies? Or is, is it just for you also sort of like the feeling, the atmosphere of that David Lynch sort of, uh, you know, the, the type of experience of it more so than just like, I need, I get it. I get what's going on. I mean, I think it's one of those situations where, you know, there you don't have to have both of them. Like I think you can enjoy either side equally, and if you do appreciate both, then more power to you. Yeah. You know, it's because yeah. um, for us, it's like you know, people are always like, oh, it's, it's style over substance, you know, stuff like that. But to a certain extent, the style is the substance in a lot of the scenes, and that's where you get your meat of, you know, juxtaposition weird logic and it's how like things work tricks you can do in filmmaking yeah. that you can't do in any other medium and so that kind of makes it part of the story itself yeah it seemed like some of the the scenes were it, it felt like uh one of the ones that stuck out to me was when you're in the loud club and there's the subtitles that reminded me <laughs> uh it made me think of fire walk with me right when they go in the yeah yeah, yeah. so i'm thinking like so were you in part of as you're compiling the script it's sort of like this is a really cool scene let's try to do something like that yeah, I think just when cutting it, we, I think it was your idea to try that out with right. the subtitles, and we're like, okay, this this kind of gives it a really cool, almost like bigger feel to like, bigger feel, like yeah, like a European feel almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it, it, nobody ever in movies seems to want to admit that you really can't hear people very well. Uh, because it just seems low budget to do it that way. So the subtitles yeah. are almost like, yeah, no, no, we we understand. It wasn't just that we did a bad job recording sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, as far as reaching out to the cast, I mean, had had you worked with people who'd been in uh, Hollywood productions or TV productions before, or was this sort of the first time working with uh, those, the, you know, that caliber of actor? We had, but not like with the actors. We'd work with like producers and like cinematographers and other people that had been in that realm, but not not anyone that we grew up watching our favorite movies. So. So was that was that uh, scary, or were you confident you could get some of these people? Like you know, like even like Clint Howard. I mean, everybody's seen that guy in something, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think there were two points I was really nervous. One was when I was out in Los Angeles and first went to meet George. I didn't have any clue what he thought about the film. He just knew I was out there, and I was like, "Hey, you have the script," and he's like, "Yeah, I read it. Come by my office." And I was like, oh, "I've never met anyone like this before. Hadn't met George, and you know, the only thing I'd seen him in." was in Twin Peaks The Return. He's pretty damn scary in that. So I'm going to his office and he he was just the coolest guy and he said he loved the script and I kind of relaxed. (laughs) Yeah, I think I was really nervous then and then our first call with Balthazar was pretty (laughs) nerve-wracking. Well, and they play fairly different characters, right? I mean, the so in in Twin Peaks, right? He's sort of like the George is like the he's like the henchman to doppelganger Cooper, right? Uh, yeah. He, so he's the one who shoots him, right? And then we get the lumberjack episode, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that that's a very different sort of character. What what made you gravitate to him for this character, where it's the the tone is very different? It's like just the way he looks on camera. It's yeah. Just. He has that presence to him, and his delivery is almost unmatched. He's just got this, like, the guy just oozes cool. Yeah. And that's what we were looking for. Yep, that was our classic. Like, you know, he even told us, he's like, you know, after I read your script, one, it's great. Two, he's like, I grew up wanting to play a detective all the time. So he's like, this is perfect. We'll have a bunch of fun. Then Balthazar, he was perfect for Rick because he's, He's got that enigmatic kind of unpredictable lightning in a bottle thing going on where I don't know. His performances are very like I don't know. The Lost Highway is so unexplainable, like what he kind of brings to the scene, and that's what we needed in Rick. Well, that, I mean, yeah, I guess that's kind of what I mean about what must be difficult to pitch a movie like this, right? Because you're you're starting right. with an influence that's unexplainable, and it's got to be tough <laughs> to be able to explain that to somebody so they understand. So you're all making the same movie, right? So, like, how do you how do you direct the performances to sort of get at that when you're on set? 
I mean, it's definitely a game you have to play where you're coaching one actor to do something to where it clashes with the other actor in an almost unpredictable way. Like specifically that shooting scene that we shot, like that's a very, that was a scary scene on the, you know, up on the screen. It was a scary scene to shoot. Like we had the actors in the right mood and it was just like, it was that powder keg feeling. Yeah, it was super tense. It was just as tense on set as it was on film for sure. Yeah, when you can create those kind of moments, it's like with uh, George and uh, Clint, they both had that whole scene memorized with each other from back to front, and it's like a five or six minute scene. Yeah, so, so our coverage leaves every time. Yeah, and we're shooting on a Zoom and we're on a dolly, so it's like we designed the blocking to do it in like all in one takes, and we would just switch cover. So it's like they're by three minutes in, everybody on the entire set's just like quiet, staring at these guys, and it's all silent. This big art gallery and everything they're saying is like echoing through the rest of the book. It you get them into those like kind of powerful feeling moments in real life and you know that it's going to come across well on screen. It's kind of just leading them into those positions is like the, the interesting part. Cause we have to kind of design those every time we go into a scene of how we're going to approach it. But How many days did you have to shoot? Uh, principal was 15. So that's gotta be tight, right? You're sort of like running around yeah. uh, exhausted. I'm sure at the end of every day, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how many pages a day were you shooting? So, yeah, I mean, like you were saying, something tonal like this, you know, there'd be some days where you're just chewing through pages and then there's other days where you're really only getting through maybe two or three pages just because it's so, so many like inserts we have to get and so many mm-hmm. actions we have to choreograph. And, you know, it, it was almost like the, the days where there was a lot of dialogue were easier to shoot. Right. Versus the days where we just have to capture people. Yeah, and that comes with having the caliber of actors we had to get yeah. come there and do what we were saying with like Clint and George, where they're just like talking for six minutes at a time, like nailing everything. You know, it's the actors made it easy for us in the style we tried to shoot and made it easy for us. But yeah, it's we wish we could have double or more of the time we had in every scene just to get in there and like play even more. But you know, you got to do what you have to do when you have you know your constraints of money and time and I'm talking with Brent Scott Mays and Derek Mays, directors of the new film La Flamme Rouge, which played at the Omaha Film Festival. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and let us know what you think. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstream's Communications Director, Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstream's Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstream's Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstream's and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstream's crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstreams everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember that you can always find our most recent 50 episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review today or become a patron over at patreon.com slash riversidechats to get access to the full backlog. Today I'm talking with Brent Scott Mays and Derek Mays, who wrote and directed the new film La Flamme Rouge, 
which follows a traumatic night of the unraveling life of a retired cycling champ as a nightmarish fever dream of murder, steroid rings, and assassins ensues, and only a renegade detective can help him survive until sunrise. It's a crazy, David Lynch-like thriller filmed in Fremont. Here's the rest of our conversation. When you guys ran into some problems with the flooding, too, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how we got through that, but we did. We had a great production team, and I mean when it's to the point where you don't even know if you can put your actors up in the same town that you're shooting in, like that's a huge problem. <laughs> How much did that uh, screw up the schedule with locations or anything? Uh, it wasn't too much with locations. It was just a matter of logistics, you know, moving crew around mm-hmm. because the rooms we could lock in usually went to cast. Mm-hmm. And Airbnbs we could get usually went to cast where like the crew, like sometimes our lighting department were, you know, we're sending you out to this little village outside of Fremont to stay mm-hmm. in this person's house tonight. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I assume it's one of the, those experiences where it was, uh, you know, so much that you learned that would be uh, stuff that you want to prepare for. But I mean, floods has got to just be like, you, you can't necessarily prepare for a, you know, once in a century disaster to happen in the middle of your shoot, but it's also got to feel just like, you know, on a film shoot, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And of course, something like that would happen. I'm sure when you get to do yeah, your feature. Yeah. I remember that. I think there was one day where Aaron uh, Parks wanted us to go location scout in Fremont. And if we would have went, I think we would have been stuck in Fremont for multiple days. Yeah. Like I, we, I remember seeing we wouldn't have video of a bridge being swept away. I'm like, dude, lucky we decided to not go today. Yeah, he was like, yeah, that would have been bad. He's like, maybe we could have built you a boat or something. <laughs> so the, the movie, uh, it it played at the Omaha Film Festival. I assume it's got a, a festival circuit ahead of it, right? I mean, are there a lot more uh, dates that you have, or at least you're figuring out at this point? Uh, yeah, a lot of them. It's you know, it's pretty early, so we're waiting to hear back from a lot of them over these the next couple of months, and then we'll be able to kind of know our schedule, like in through what September, or October. Yeah, I think we we've got quite the queue loaded up mm-hmm. in our uh, submissions, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I mean, yeah. there's obviously going to be some festivals that really resonate with it, you know, on the jury side of things. Um, we've been trying to pick the right ones that uh, have appreciated films like ours in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where too, people sort of assume, all right, you'd finish editing the movie. Now it's over. Now you move on to the next thing. But with this kind of project, it's, there's so much work to try to get it out to the people you want to see it. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, you talk a little bit about you're kind of figuring out your next project. Are you doing that simultaneously with, seeing what's going to happen with La Flamme Rouge? Yep. Yep. We've got a slate of, uh, you know, IPs that we've come up with. And one is on the verge of, you know, being written. And uh, that one's going to shoot here in Nebraska. Um, it's, I, I think we're going to shoot most of it down between like Nebraska city and Falls city. So just that, mm-hmm. that area, you know, it's, it's got a very interesting landscape to it. And I, I don't know if anything's really been shot in that type of locale here in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And we've got some, some very cool influences for that one. <laughs> are you, are you divulging any of that or is it secret still? Uh, try not to give too much away. <laughs> it, how big of a departure is it from the one you just made? Um, it's going to still be, you know, it. It's not going to be like your neo noir style. It's, right. it's going to be more of a uh, horror film, but not. not yeah, we like to call it. As we like to call it atmospheric terror instead yeah. of horror because that's more along the lines of what we do. We're we're not about the gore and jump scares and stuff. Like if we're gonna scare someone, we want to scare you on like oh, in a way you've never been scared like. I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, with the stuff with the assassin, we kind of leaned into like our weird surrealistic horror stuff. And it's going to be fun to be able to take that to a different level and a different direction completely. So. Yeah. I mean, you, you sort of play with that in La Flamme Rouge. There's a little bit with right. like him being haunted. You got uh, a little bit of gore here and there. So was it sort of playing with those elements, but not fully going that direction that made you want to explore it more in the next feature? 
I think so. Yeah, we we had a good time making the kind of visceral, terrifying imagery that we got to make, and I think we're gonna be able to have a lot of fun with that in the future. Yeah, because we didn't really lean too much into trying to make, you know, La Flamme Rouge scary right. per se. Yeah, I know it's it's got that like off factor to it with mm -hmm. some of the characters and the assassin especially, but we definitely touched on the, uh, you know, that subconscious level of being chased by something and this thing has almost like a magical quality to it. Mm -hmm. But I think we're going to lean full into that on the next one. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things about uh, immediately seeing, okay, this is going to be a David Lynch type movie is uh, as I'm watching, I'm thinking like, this. well, this can go any direction ever. Uh, <laughs> I cannot <laughs> predict where this will go, which which is a fun space to be in because it's pretty rare that you watch a movie and you think like, well, this could go everywhere, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So what other uh, what other influences do you have? It doesn't have to be specific for this next project, but like what, what other maybe types of movies or just other filmmakers speak to you guys? Uh, we love Nicholas Raffin. Yeah, I thought Drive seemed to come through as a as a, an influence oh, yeah. as well. Only God forgives and Drive definitely. Uh, I know, like being a cinematographer, I took a lot of influence from Only God Forgives, when especially with our color separations and stuff, and just how we decided to cover scenes. And uh, I mean, we love Michelangelo Antonioni. I mean, Michael Mann is a big influence <laughs> too. Just in in terms of you know, character development and the pacing of the film too, yep. where it's almost like it just ramps up and up and up and up and then it's over. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah, editing, <laughs> the momentum of it seemed interesting to me with all the dissolves. And I wasn't sure how much of that was, uh, with, was supposed to be Lynchian or if there were other one, other elements, but it seemed like you always just have something happening. So even if people are talking, there's a lot of those cutaways and just, you keep a, a visual energy that's going, uh, you know, throughout the whole thing, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, how do how do you guys split up the the duties? So I mean, one of you is cinematographer, one of you is editor. Is that is that how it works? And then you both write and direct. Uh, well, I'm so I'm shooting on set. I'm the cinematographer, so I'm manning the camera and you know like telling Gaffer what to do and how light the scene and all that. So I'm kind of running that, and Derek's doing more of the like classic directing thing. So I'm kind of directing from the cinematography side on set, and he's filling the kind of you know the normal director duties but it works well because we can cover so much of the controlling kind of ground of what we want to do and i don't have to worry about what he's doing because it's what i would do and i don't have to, he doesn't have to worry about yeah. me you know so you know like you were wondering post to like we we both edit. yeah okay you never disagree. There's never a point where you're like, I like this cut more or I like this shot, this take more or anything like that. We definitely disagree on things for sure. I mean, I think that just goes, you know, yeah. hand in hand with being an artist mm -hmm. and having a vision. But at the end of the day, we both want to achieve the same effects. Right. So it's just a matter of getting to the the thing that we both like. Mm -hmm. So. Do you, do you ever consider uh, if you, like, say, you handed it off to an editor or is it just you? I mean, I hate to say it negatively because Control Freak sounds like I'm attacking you or, you know, criticizing you in some way. But I also get it because it's your vision and sometimes there really isn't anybody else who will get that the way that you will, right? So, I mean, but why not uh, collaborate with an editor versus doing it yourself or, like, collaborate with a cinematographer? Well, how'd you come up with the way that you ended up, uh, you know, dividing up duties and doing so much? I mean, I, I think at this point, we just out of necessity in terms of just streamlining things and making sure it comes through, we just had to do it ourselves. Yeah. But I mean, if we find the right people that we trust going forward, uh -huh. and, you know, yeah, we'd love to have an editor. Editors, <laughs> if, yeah, if you can show us an editor that you know, really jive with, we'd love to meet Yeah, him. and I think this next one is going to be more like that because like we, like he said, La Flamme is such a weird style thing that we just kind of had to do this one to make sure it worked because it's our directorial debut. It's kind of our calling card for a lot of what we want to do. We just kind of needed to ensure that that happened. But yeah. So how long? And oh, photography, I, just, I would, when I started directing in school and stuff and I wanted to be a director essentially right away, but the more I did that, the more I wanted to be shooting. So it's kind of like I became more of like a hybrid of the two. So it's like I, I shoot all of our stuff. Mm -hmm. 
So do you do traditional coverage or do you storyboard exactly the shots or how, how do you go about it? Our, shoot, or our uh, scripts are almost shooting. Scripts. Right. So the way we write is because we know we're going to shoot it. We don't really have a shot list or anything. We just know and have talked about it so much, like how the scene needs to be covered to impact things in the way it needs to be. And yeah, we don't do necessarily traditional, like wide over, over coverage. And if we do do that, it's like, like that scene with them in front of the lake, we do French overs the whole time. And then when something intense happens, bam, we break the line and we're like way under from the other side. So we do do like, you know, you've got to learn the rules so you can break them, but we break them a lot for intentional reasons. So how, how was your film school experience? Because I, I, I think it's, it's probably the true of any degree that uh, there's some people you meet who have film degrees and like, you know, every other degree too, where it's like, wow, they don't seem to know much about movies. Right. So like, you know, it, it seems like it's like right. uh, you have to take on a lot on your own as well. Right. You have to sit, set the bar pretty high for yourself. What was, what was it like for you? Uh, you know, it's like you said, most film schools are going to be what you put into it. And I wanted to put everything I had into it. And I spent a lot of time just working on other people's sets. Uh, I really connected with the guy who ran the equipment room, uh, Logan G. He's one of our friends. That's an assistant. He's an assistant camera person out in New York. And, uh, you know, I was lucky to have a couple of people like him. One of my other friends, Jordan found that I spent a lot, a lot of time around these guys that were willing to like teach me stuff like outside of class. You know, it's like, I think that's, where I got the most out of it. It's like your classes and stuff are great, but it's you can if you're not taking what you're learning there and going out by yourself and learning how to do it and seeing it happen. It's like you can tell me all you want about how to light this scene, but until I see someone do it, it's not gonna register for me. You know, it's it was kind of like that, you know, and it helped with getting connections with people and the networking side of it and whatnot. It was good and the access to some good gear and I don't know. Film school is like, if you want to do it, go for it. And if you don't just work extra hard. So have you guys, uh, have you, have you met David Lynch? Have you used any of your actor connections to uh, get at the guy? <laughs> Not yet, but I did get to drink some coffee that David gave George when I first met George, but that's the, that's the closest. <laughs> <laughs> that Do you know if he's going to be able to watch La Flamme Rouge? Do any of these guys talk to him enough? I'm sure he'll at least know about it at some point. You know, I don't think yeah. it's going to go unnoticed that David doesn't kind of hear about this weird little movie that three of his like handpicked actors that were in, you know, that's so that that's gotta be uh almost kind of scary, but an honor, right. That he would even be aware of the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. So, you guys, uh, I mean, you want to keep making movies in Nebraska? Is that is that for practical purposes, or is it kind of like a mission statement? Yeah, I would say it's more of a mission statement. <laughs> what is what's think, the mission? And it's not necessarily just Nebraska either. It's like yeah. there's a bunch of stuff we'll shoot here. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff we want to shoot down in Kansas City. It's like all these places we grew up. It's like you watch Antonio and his red desert, you know, it's like all those visuals. That's what we woke up every day and saw outside of our house, like across the place. It's like, we, we know that there's so much awesome stuff in the Midwest that we can utilize and tell stories about that haven't been done before. And, you know, you watch Nightcrawler or something and you're like, Oh, that's the place from drive. That's the bus yeah. stop from that movie. It's like, like given all the money, you know, we're out, <laughs> yeah, we were out and, Los Angeles, I think that we would be frustrated right. with, you know, not being able to get the right tone that we want out of the locations because, you know, it, all of that stuff is so imprinted on us. Right. And if we do eventually someday have a film that needs to be shot in Los Angeles, needs to be shot in New York, we'll be more than happy to go do that. But if we can kind of, you know, keep it in this area, that'd be fun. So is the goal to keep writing them as well, generating it all kind of originally? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we definitely love to work with other writers and stuff too, you know, or we love books and graphic novels and whatnot. So it's like, there's some cool existing stuff that we would love to touch someday. But yeah, I think the, the thing with collaborating with people or, you know, turning someone else's screenplay into a film is that we really have to connect with it and it would have to feel like something that we would write, right. I think. So how would you describe, I mean, like the, the, the career goals, are there, are there specific sort of like milestones you have? Like you're going to make a, 
you know, like a big, uh, big budget action movie, space movie. You're going to make your like Lawrence of Arabia in Kansas or what, 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 do, you, what do you see on the horizon? Uh, this next one, we definitely want to do our second feature and that we're also very interested in like, you know, it's like one of our favorite things is true detective. So we like those yeah. like eight to 10 hour long episode, like kind of one-off seasons you can do. It's like, that's something we would love to do. Limited series are awesome. So it's like, it'd be fun to branch out and do some different, like, you know, not just a film, go do a TV show. Like, yeah, like either like limited series or like hour long premium cable shows mm-hmm. are definitely our bread and butter. Well, yeah. Direct an anime someday. Like, you know, yeah, all we want to like eventually video get into games. video games yeah. and stuff like that. It's like we grew up playing Metal Gear Solid and we're like huge Hideo Kojima fans. It's like we just, there's so much we want to do. It's just, you know, finding the right stories we want to tell. Well, it's a weird time because we're sort of like, you know, uh, is the feature dead? Is the feature an antiquated form, right? That's sort of the question we're having uh, as it's sort of like, what even is a movie? Is it just a 90-minute episode of a TV show now as we enter the streaming era? So it must it must have kind of sucked, right, to have your movie come out and the Omaha Film Festival is not even entirely in theaters, right? I mean, how, how do you feel about the current climate of movies? I mean, in terms of releasing or the festival circuit? <laughs> well, just, I mean, in general, I mean, I'm sure as you're making it the whole time, uh, it's got to be the dream to sit there and watch it with a crowd in a theater. And now yeah. we're sort of like, are theaters even going to bounce back? It's hard to tell. I mean, what, what, how do you feel about it? I mean, it's definitely been a weird experience because we've poured so much of ourselves into, you know, creating this baby that's supposed to launch your career. But at the same time, there's this paradigm shift happening mm-hmm. in like every level of the industry. And they all want to say in the articles and stuff and deadline or variety, we know how it's going to work. We're using it to our advantage in this way. And then next month they come out with an article that says the exact opposite. So it's like you said, it's this ever-changing thing where right is wrong and wrong is right within a month of each other. And so like all these distributors and festivals and everyone's just trying to play the game the best they can. But it's like navigating it right now and trying to come up with a solid plan like to be like, oh, this is how I would have traditionally distributed the film. It's like all that just goes out the window. Yeah, and so I think it's just adapting. And and finding the right people that are at that level where they know they have to adapt and they can see the, you know, the writing's been on the wall for certain things for so long. And so now they're going to try things a different way. Like getting in contact and building relationships with those types of people in the industry, I think, are just it's the way forward because no matter what happens, they're gonna come up with a good plan. Do you think movies are going to be as popular as a form in the future, or is it going to move into just like sort of, you know, long form, whether it's miniseries or TV or, you know, full TV show? Yeah, I don't think you can kill the movie. Like, I, I think it's going to stick around. And I think that, you know, people have a, like, they're going through this, you know, whole uh, binge watching kind of thing where, series comes out you sit there and watch it for like 12 hours and stuff it's like you i feel like you do that for long enough and for too much you're just going to get to the point where you're like man i want to freaking watch an hour and a half movie and get like this whole story and it kind of lends itself to you know you can't tell some of the same stories and features that you can tv shows and vice versa yeah i i oh, sorry go ahead as much as you to think that like making from dust till dawn from into a movie into a <laughs> series would be a good idea it's like you just extended the movie that i could have watched a better version of with george clooney in it for an hour and 40 minutes later yeah well that one in particular part of the fun is that it's it's sort of like two movies mashed into one whereas in a, like the to, to elongate it kind of ruins the surprise right so uh you know i with with COVID happening with, I mean, sort of ending now you've had, you had the floods. Now you've got COVID. It's gotta be nice to think like, well, maybe the next one, there won't be some huge global or local disaster that's going on. Right. Are you you feeling like you you need to get back out there and make it once, uh, once everyone's vaccinated here? It'd be great. Yeah. It's, uh, it would definitely be nice to get, get rolling on stuff sooner rather than later. Um, you know, how that looks with, the pandemic is a whole nother story, but I guess we'll just see how it shakes out. Um, I would say one blessing in disguise that happened was um, we were able to attend uh, AFM, the American film market mm-hmm. virtually this year. So, you know, Dana Altman advised us that we should just take the movie there and see what happens. And uh, we met a lot of cool people, but uh, the best thing that happened was we met our manager, Alex there. 
Um, she was just sitting at one of the virtual tables and we mopped down and we had heard of a zoom window yeah. popped up and we just hit it off. Yeah. You would sit down at these tables and it shows like their name and who, where they work or whatever, or what they're there with. And we saw Bohemia group and we're like, Oh, we know who Bohemia group is. And like their management group, let's talk to them. So yeah, like you said, we hit it off with her and we ended up being like, yeah, let's get out of this and go do a zoom call. She watched the trailer, loved it. And, you know, we kicked her over the movie and before we knew it, they were like, hey, for the duration of AFM, we're going to say that we're representing you right now. So you have kind of that like legitimacy leg up stamp, you know, that's going to weirdly just help out with talking to people and deals and whatnot. And then after the AFM, they were like, well, we'd like you to actually be a part of Bohemia. So having people behind us kind of that understood where we were coming from, the idea was kind of invaluable you know and they weren't from the producing team it's not all yeah. of us that made the movie being like our movie's great please take it it's we've got someone that's already in the industry has these connections and it's kind of like this is what this is and if you like it great if not we're moving on so it's a it's a nice change having access to that yeah that's awesome um does your hometown have a theater not anymore no unfortunately uh, what's the closest one it's uh, in Kansas. Yeah, there's, there's like a in, plywood. There's one in Hiawatha, Kansas. I think it's seventy-five percent plywood. <laughs> so I mean, I there and I thought I was like, why did this new Scorsese movie look so bad? <laughs> then I went and bought the movie. I was like, oh yeah, because I watched it on unpainted plywood. <laughs> so have you tried to set up a screening for uh, people in the hometown or you know friends and family that you grew up with? Um. Well. We pushed uh, them to the virtual screening yeah. for the Omaha. So mm-hmm. hopefully that gives them all a good chance to watch it. And, you know, hopefully somewhere yeah. down the line. Yeah, I think Aaron get the, the library show it or something yeah. there. But I think we'd probably do that when Aaron wants to, because he was talking about doing kind of, you know, a little tour of these smaller town theaters, which would be fun, just like in the local area around Nebraska from Fall City up to Lincoln and Omaha, Fremont. It'd be fun to just get some local screenings in. It'd be really cool to show it to drive in sometime. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah that'd be fitting. Um, so, I mean, did you guys, did you go to the movie theater a lot as kids? Because it seems like that's, that's a big formative thing for anybody who goes on to make movies is, you know, there's the magic of the, of the theater. Was it, was that the case for you guys? We did go to the theater, but I mean, there, there was two screens mm-hmm. and it was, you know, just your, top box office movie yeah. every time so we did go but we just bought yeah. a ton of dvds growing up like yeah. collecting dvds any anytime you would go out of town grocery shopping we would spend our time in the, mm-hmm. the dvd aisle just <laughs> trying to find these gems that we never had access to and you know we grew up in the days of video rental stores so we, yeah. did, have a, we did have a video rental store yeah, there, there was something fun about uh, the the limitations, I think, of going to Hollywood Video or Blockbuster. Uh, where, oh, yeah. Like now, I, I, I'll spend an hour and a half scrolling through all of the different streaming services I pay for uh, instead of just having watched a movie. I don't know about you guys. Yep, mm-hmm. we completely agree. And I mean, we're huge fans of the physical format yeah. and just that process of having the film. You can see it. It's on your shelf. You want to enjoy it. Just, I think the physical act of putting a disc into a player, it's almost like a ritual. Like you're, you're strapped in, you can't get off the ride unless it's really bad. But <laughs> if you bought it, it's probably good. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we collect, we still collect tons yep. of Blu-rays. And... Did you have a lot of VHSs? Uh, not we too were many. Our parents of, did. Right. They had a bunch, but then kind of, when, but then by the time we were like spending our money in middle school buying DVDs, it was like, the DVDs were finally at a point where you could buy them and they weren't like $30. <laughs> yeah. The whole VHS thing, people who have nostalgia for tapes, uh, I don't quite get because you, like, if you go back and look at a VHS, like, wow, that was horrible. It's panned and scanned. Yeah. It sounds bad. <laughs> it wasn't yeah, a good well, experience. What's <laughs> uh, one thing people don't think about with streaming versus physical media is, you know, if you have a good system and you're playing it off of a disc, just the sound yeah, just Blu-ray sound. Ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, do, do you guys know? Uh, it's probably too early to figure that out, but at some point, I'm sure, or you probably you can just make a Blu-ray for yourself of the movie, right? To get the to get oh, that yeah. experience. Yeah. <laughs> do you have one already? No, we usually just watch like the massive 
like render files that we have that are uncompressed. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we'll eventually have a distributor yeah. where you know it'll be available to purchase physically. Yep. And you know, another plan is to have the soundtrack on vinyl. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So what's what's the next milestone for La Flamme Rouge at this point? Do you have a next screening date figured out, or is it all tentative? Uh, I think it's wherever it gets selected. Yeah. The next okay. Festival. There's been a pretty big gap March kind of, we don't have any like notifications as to whether or not we're screening. So we're going to find out a lot more in like May and April about where we're playing and when. So uh, at some point, I don't think the vinyl release is going to be too, too far off. That won't be like, yeah. So where, where can people listening to this go to find all the updates as you figure them out? So our Instagram page is probably the mm-hmm. coolest way. We keep up mostly on that before everything else. There's a Facebook page too. And, and Twitter. Twitter yeah. All right. One last question uh, that I'm guessing you don't either don't or can't answer. Uh, so this new David Lynch thing he's working on, right? He's got some Netflix show and there's rumors that it's uh, some kind of secretly Twin Peaks continuation. Did you, did you get any answers from your cast? Any intel? I keep my uh, I keep my earmuffs on because I don't want to hear anything until I watch it. And uh, yeah, I think George has to dodge questions a lot from yeah. people. I don't think he's going to tell us anything. And I mean, we when it comes to that, we least. appreciate George enough to not we don't want it because we have our circle of friends is like, has George told you anything? What's happening? We're like, dude, we haven't. Yeah, asked we can't him. ask him. <laughs> All right. Well, th- I, I had to try. I was just curious. I don't know why I want to spoil it for myself, but uh, thank thank you guys for taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed the movie and enjoyed getting to know you a little bit today. Awesome. Same. This was great. Yeah, we really appreciate it. It's always nice to talk to someone like you that just gets it. That was the Mays Brothers talking about their new film, La Flamme Rouge, which was filmed in Fremont and played at the Omaha Film Festival. I'm sure there will be all kinds of updates as the movie gets picked up for more festivals and whatever circuit, whatever medium, whatever streaming or theatrical sort of future it has along with the rest of the industry. We'll, we'll post all that stuff on our social media. So if you want updates, follow Riverside Chats. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. although today I'm playing us out to some Twin Peaks music in honor of the, uh, the topic. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukwitz, and we'll be back next week. As always, I'm Tom Noblock, and thank you for listening.